which, you know, and, and the Institutes was to become, in his view, as he says in the introduction to the 1559 edition, it is his summary of doctrine. It's a summary of what we can know. Hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's the summary of revelation in scripture. And, and so, but it's, it comes out of a life of study and preaching and pastoral care and yes, and also fighting with various opponents. So it's, 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 the book is a very existential book. Welcome to the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast featuring Peter Bell and Nick Fulweiler. This is a show about Christian doctrine for everyone from the historic Reformed tradition delivered by two friends in an unscripted dialogue. Join us as we discuss how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Are you in the Orange County or Santa Ana area? We are exploring a church plant, Santa Ana Reformed, with the oversight and accountability of Oceanside URC and Reverend Danny Hyde. If you are interested or you know someone who might be interested in the area, please check out our show notes for a link to sign up for updates. Our Twitter or Instagram at guiltgracepod or Santa Ana URC for the same sign up link or simply email us at santaannareformed at gmail.com. We begin meetings on October 28th at 6.30 p.m. at 4th Street Market in downtown Santa Ana. Now on with the episode. Hello, everyone. Yet once again, it's another day of fresh grace and mercy. This is the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast, where we bridge the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. Today, we have an exciting book club episode. We have Dr. Carl Truman back on the show, as well as Dr. Bruce Gordon. And they're going to be talking about their brand new book, Handbook of Calvin and Calvinism. And it's written, it's published by Oxford University Press. So we're going to jump right into that here in a moment with Peter. Uh, just before we do that, as a reminder to you guys, we got some links on the show notes. And on some of those links, you'll find this the Society of Reformed podcasters those are a group of other like-minded reform podcasts out there if you like our show and what we talk about you'll probably like theirs as well as a couple links to find a reformed church near you that's the most important thing to find a church to call home there's some local church finders as well as one peter is going to start here in about a year here in orange county california and then you're going to obviously find a link to Oxford University Press. This is where you can actually click on and purchase this book for yourselves, because I know you're going to love it. After listening to this conversation, you're probably going to want to purchase it right away. So without further ado, let's jump right in and introduce Dr. Gordon and Dr. Truman to the show. Yeah, in case you guys haven't um, listened to our podcast or listened to any other podcasts, these guys have been on. Um, Bruce Gordon is the Titus Street Professor of Ecclesiastical History at Yale Divinity School, and Carl Truman is Professor of Biblical and Religious Studies at Grove City College, and also the co-host of the popular podcast Mortification of Spin, and we're talking about their book, The Oxford Handbook of Calvin and Calvinism. So thanks for coming back on, Dr. Truman, and coming on for the first time, Dr. Gordon. Thank you. A pleasure. I was, I was going to ask to make a, make a joke. So how, how many yachts have you bought since last November, Dr. Truman? Since, uh, since the absolute <laughs> explosive success of your book. 
I've been focusing yeah. on uh, wingtip shoes and fountain pens. Actually, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's been a good year. It's been a yes. It's been a good year in the Truman household. Good. I'm glad. Uh, <laughs> but I was I was going to tell Doctor Doctor Gordon. I mean, we talked a little bit about this before recording, but your your uh, biography on Calvin in 2009 was was really influential, kind of on me and, and learning more about Calvin. So thanks for that, and thanks for coming on too. Oh, thank you very much for inviting me. But Carl is very much the materialist of our relationship. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> we're we're talking before we hit record how you guys met. Uh, we could you can uh, maybe explain that to the audience and how it definitely beats how Peter and I met. Yeah, we met through CrossFit. Never people people have heard us through CrossFit, but yeah, if, if you guys want a yeah a brief description of how you guys know each other and how you guys came to to, to write this yeah. book or edit this book together. Well, I, I, I can do the initial meeting and Bruce can do the book, I guess. Uh, yeah. Bruce and I met in 1988, I think it was. We were both postgraduates in Scotland at the time. Bruce was at the University of St. Andrews. I was at the University of Aberdeen. And the four ancient uh, universities would have a church history reading party each year where students and faculty could go and present papers and engage in informal discussion. And it was actually at a redemptorist monastery in Perth. <laughs> so Bruce and I met in a creepy old monastery. Uh, and my lasting memories of, of the time there are one, the food was terrible and there wasn't <laughs> enough of it. But there was a pub in the town that we could all retreat to after the business of the day and, and supplement the calories in a, in a liquid fashion. So I've actually known yeah. Bruce longer than I've known my wife, uh, my, wow. my oldest academic friend, I guess. Yes, I appreciate the oldest part. But the, the, uh, <laughs> what, I, what yeah. I remember very clearly was that uh, we were at, this, at this, this weekend and we spent on the Saturday afternoon, we went for a walk in this town of Perth and Carl explained to me that as he was a very strict Sabbatarian, he would not be attending any of the sessions on Sunday. So, yeah, uh, I'd forgotten so, that. I've, I've uh, moved a Carl, little Carl, since then. Carl, Carl's penchant for moral superiority was, was evident even then. It hasn't changed. No, it hasn't changed at all. I I'd forgotten that. Oh, man, I'd never have agreed to do the book with you if I knew you were going to throw that <laughs> That's, there. that's right. I've been yeah. waiting 30 years to tell that story. <laughs> yeah, it happens. 2021, finally an interview. Yeah, you get to tell them what you, what you think. But finally, I've been able to unburden myself with that story. <laughs> Though if my mother-in-law heard that anecdote, she would be hugely impressed. So you may yeah, actually right. have boosted my, my right. cred in the family. That's right. That's, right. You were. that's funny. And then, so, uh, yeah, how'd you guys, how'd you guys come to the book together? What was, what was that, yeah. that process? I think we were approached by Oxford. Uh, you, you were approached and then you approached me. I think. Yeah, I approached, uh, and I think my answer was, I don't really know very much about Calvin. I need to <laughs> call on my friend Bruce Gordon to, uh, <laughs> to co-edit it with me. So the book arose, really, it was, Oxford do this. I think it's a great series, their mm. handbook series, because they're not dictionaries or the, the mm. typical sort of primers that often handbook series are. They're substantial volumes that often cover sort of the, the cutting edge names in the scholarship in a single volume. So it was attractive to be involved in, in a project that would pull a lot of, of names together. And I think uh, one of the things that when Bruce and I discussed it early on, we decided that we would 
there were two things I think, Bruce, that that, that we thought to to do strategically. One, we didn't want to do yet another book on Calvin and Calvinism mm-hmm. that covered the usual topics, Calvin on predestination, Calvin on church-state relations. We wanted to do a book that had a good sweep, but also offered some unusual and interesting angles on Calvinism, world Calvinism, Mm -hmm. hence the the sections on Calvinism in other countries, Africa, China, places like that. And the other thing we wanted to do was we were very aware that when we were young academics, uh, senior academics had, had given us breaks that had allowed us to publish things that that had, had helped us in our careers. And we didn't just want to get the usual suspects in to write for the book. We also wanted to pull on on the younger talent. Bruce, hmm. uh, therefore, I think you, you pulled in some of your former postgrads. I had a couple yeah, of my I, former oh, postgrads. Yeah. You know, it was, it was it, I had to explain to some of my friends who work on Calvin why they weren't invited to oh. be part of this volume. <laughs> uh, when, yeah. when, the, when the volume came out, all sorts of people, they wrote to me and said, uh, I, I thought that I worked on Calvin. Why, why am I not in the Oxford handbook of yeah. Calvin and Calvinism? Yeah. And I, I, I know it's precisely what, what Carl said, that, that um, there are various volumes um, which are Calvin and Calvin and Calvin and, and that's mm. not what we wanted to do. We wanted to invite a different cast of people to write on things like Calvin and Shakespeare, Calvin and Milton, mm. uh, Calvin on or, you know, Calvin and early uh, exploration of the Americas uh, on, on, you know, Calvin on ghosts, Calvin on the devil uh, to, to do, but also, you know, the, the weight of the volume is much more towards Calvinism mm-hmm. yep. and that's the term that we might want to discuss, but then, then Calvin, there's actually Calvin makes a relatively short appearance at the beginning, but we, for the most part, we invited people who were at the beginning of their career rather than people who've been writing on this for 30 years, like Carl and I. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, so kind of getting back to Dr. Gordon, so your, your background in, in the books that you've written on, on Calvin too. So what, what got you into Calvin and writing on Reformation history? I, this is an accidental story. Um, I, I was visited by the editor of Yale University Press. She came to see me when I was in my office in St. Andrews and she asked me what I was doing. And I, I, she got her pen out and notebook and said, you know, tell me what you're working on. So I described to her very earnestly what I was interested in. And I noticed she wasn't taking any notes. <laughs> and I thought this isn't going very well. So I finally, I just gave up at one point and said, is there something you have in mind? And she said, yes, we're 2009 is coming up, which is the anniversary of, of Calvin's birth and and um, we're looking for someone to write a biography of Calvin which I've always maintained that I worked on the Swiss Reformation but not Calvin and uh, so I found myself enlisted to do something that I thought I had no background in but that gave me I thought the opportunity to 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 be slightly outside the guild and and write about Calvin from a different perspective which was largely to write about Calvin from those people who knew him rather than some from someone who focuses on Calvin directly, hmm. which is what I tried to do, which was to see Calvin, at least in part, as other people saw him. Interesting. Yeah, yeah I guess my initial question for you guys would just be starting from the basics. Who's John Calvin? Could you please uh, just in a very 
basic way, introduce him to the audience in case uh, some listeners are not fully aware of who John Calvin is. Carl, do you want to take that on? <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, Calvin is uh, probably the most significant of what's often referred to as the second generation of reformers. He's uh, born in 1509. He comes to maturity, therefore, in a world that's already being reshaped by the the technological developments and the theological developments that mark the uh, the 16th century. Uh, he is an interesting figure in that he spends much of his life in exile. Uh, he's often sometimes referred to, I've heard him referred to as a Swiss reformer. And as Bruce has already said, you know, he does the Swiss Reformation, not Calvin. Calvin is a Frenchman, uh, spends much of his uh, adult life and career in exile, particularly in the city of Geneva. And he's perhaps most famous for two things. Controversially, he's popularly known as the man who burned Michael Servetus, the, the notorious yep. anti-Trinitarian heretic. So if he pops up in popular culture, it's typically as a kind of 16th century Ayatollah Khomeini sort of figure leading this uh, alleged brutal theocracy in Geneva and persecuting poor people like Servetus. And he also produced one of the great, uh, I, I think Bruce may, may want to qualify this, but I would say one of the great theological and literary masterpieces of the 16th century uh, in his institutes, which is, it's not a systematic theology, but it is an attempt, I think, to present theology in a, a synthesized and concise way that helps people read the scriptures. Often in his commentaries, he will make allusions to the institutes as a source for gaining clarity on particular theological doctrines. And the institutes has come down as one of the great theological classics. So Calvin, 16th century Frenchman, spent much of his time in exile, I think had a profound formative influence on the development of the modern French language, and also placed his stamp upon the Reformed tradition. Now, the Reformed tradition is not like the Lutheran tradition. I think we make a mistake if we, we allow the term Calvinism to capture our imagination and think that Calvin plays the same role in the mm. Reformed tradition that Luther does in Lutheranism. Yeah. Calvin is not so much the, uh, the founder of the feast, as he is perhaps in the long run the most significant formulator and thinker relative to the reformed tradition bruce have i given a relatively accurate account yeah, absolutely. There? i think i think it's i think it's really important that uh, you know we don't diminish calvin by acknowledging that he was the inheritor of a tradition which was um, if I can plug my book on yeah, Holdrick Zwingli, um, which was, you know, Holdrick Zwingli, who was the reformer in Zurich for a contemporary of Luther, so the 1520s. He is in many ways the person who creates this tradition of what mm -hmm. we would call the reform tradition with its um, perspectives on the, the, the sacraments, the covenant, and, and many other things that become tenets of the Reformed tradition. So uh, Calvin will certainly revise it and expand it and do various things within, but Calvin comes into a tradition, as Carl said, that already exists. Hmm. You know, by the time Calvin moves towards Protestantism, Zwingli's already been dead. You know, he dies in 1531. Calvin hasn't yet left France and become an evangelical. So it, it is, 
it's it's somewhat confusing when we talk about the great reformers if we think that they all existed at the same time they didn't hmm. um calvin comes in is is carl said in the second generation so there's already a protestant reformation when calvin enters into it when he travels to to switzerland having fled france as a refugee he encounters a reformed church. He 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 sees what a reformed liturgy looks like. He learns what a reformed theology is. He will, in many ways, become the public face of it. But it's it's he doesn't invent it. Hmm. And it, it, I think it's fair to say as well, Bruce, that in his own lifetime, he's arguably not obviously the most influential reformed no. theologian. I think I in England, yeah. Heinrich Bullinger, for example, yeah. Zwingli's right. successor in Zurich, That's his right. book, uh, his decades, which is his sort of, for want of a better term, equivalent of the institutes, yeah. is actually a more popular theological textbook yeah. than the yeah. institutes in, the, in, in 16th century England. Yeah, yeah. This, is, this is important that Calvin, um, you know, we, our perspective on the Reformation is not necessarily their perspective on, on the Reformation. Calvin was certainly became a very prominent figure, but Calvin never existed in isolation. He existed in a network of people on whom he was highly dependent, including, as Carl says, Heinrich Bullinger, who was the Zwingli's reform uh, successor in, in Zurich. But there were other people like Martin Bootser, um, and the, you know Guillaume Ferrell, there was um, Pierre Pierre Furet, uh, there was a whole circle of people who were mutually uh, dependent on each other. And Calvin was part of this network. He used to send his work to other people to be read and to get feedback on. He didn't necessarily always like the feedback he got from other people. <laughs> he um, so he's so our our sense of kind of Calvinism, which which Carl hints at as yeah. this being this singular figure of you know of singular influence, is is historically um, a misrepresentation. Which is not to diminish Calvin as a figure, yeah, but yeah, it's yeah, rather yeah. to put him in, in his proper context. Yeah. And he's so much more than just Tulip, right? Oh, yes. Well, as I said in my biography <laughs> yeah. of Calvin, one of, one of my favorite lines in Cal my biography of Calvin, if I can say this, is that Calvin never saw Tulip in his life. That's that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Tulip was a response to yeah, the, the remonstrance. And that was, what, 60, that's 70 right. years after Calvin himself. <clears throat> um, so even we were talking beforehand too in uh, pre-record with with kind of the the differentiation between Calvinism and kind of Reformation in total. So if you if you can define so what kind of why Calvin and Calvinism and is how how does that differ from Reformed tradition or does it differ? Isn't it like an umbrella term? So if you can define kind of those terms, why those are distinguished? I think it. To a large extent, I mean, it sounds rather specious response, but to a large extent, it depends how you're using the term Calvinism. You know, in if you remember back to the rise of the so-called young, restless, and reformed, uh, uh, yep. 12, 13 years ago, figures like Mark Driscoll, etc., being characterized as Calvinistic, and by and large, it seems to me that what was meant there was was not even the five points, the so-called tulip of mm -hmm. Calvinism. What was meant was a, a kind of basic commitment to a kind of anti-Pelagian understanding of salvation. So hmm. there are some very loose to, uh, ways of using the term Calvinism. Typically, uh, I think I would, I would say that what we, 
we more appropriately call Calvinism, which is the ecclesiastical tradition that seeks to represent the Reformed faith, is, is defined often by, well, in terms of Presbyterianism, uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Catechisms, uh, and in terms of the continental tradition, the Canons of Dort, the Belgian Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism. None of those documents, of course, were written by Calvin. But I think it's arguable that there's very little in those documents that, that Calvin would, would have taken exception to. So I think Calvinism can be just a synonym for the Reformed tradition when we're thinking confessionally. In more popular circles, it tends to mean an anti-Pelagian view of salvation, hmm. neither of which track back directly, immediately, and, and perfectly to, to Calvin himself, I think. It's, it's a term that is, is broadly used. And what we did in the book was we tried to respect that breadth of meaning as well. And when we came to the Calvinism section of the book, we're not looking at, okay, who uses Calvin in their thinking? We're thinking in much broader terms. We're really, I think, they're thinking of the reformed faith as such. Hmm. I think, you know, the term Calvinism was invented while Calvin was still alive. And in his lectures on the, on the book of Daniel, which was at the very end of his life, he says, people speak of Calvinism. Uh, and he says, I, you know, there's no such thing. I'm not, I'm not, there, there are no Calvinists. We are, we are Christians. Hmm. And you know, Zwingli had faced the same thing when when he was accused of being a Lutheran. Uh, it's reformed is 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 in some ways preferable because it respects the diversity of the tradition hmm. in a way that Calvinism seems to preclude. And you know, if we're going to talk about the reformed tradition, we have to think about um, Arminianism. We have to think about the liberal tradition of, of the reformed in the 19th century. We have mm. to think about Karl Barth. Are you going to call Karl Barth a Calvinist? Mm. Well, that becomes a very problematic issue. Emil Brunner, who, who, who regarded himself in the reformed tradition, do we see him as a Calvinist? Brunner and Barth, of course, famously disagreed on, on what Calvin actually said. And so, uh, you know, we say that in, in our introduction, that although this is the Oxford you know, Handbook of Calvin and Calvinism, it, it is probably, you know, more historically and theologically responsible to, to speak about it in terms of reformed, because it's, it's not monocausal. It's, it's, it's a tradition that has many different lines to it. And, and you know, what is fascinating is that many people will claim Calvin but they're claiming a very different Calvin hmm. when, when, you know, they, they read him in very different ways yeah. and claim his inheritance. So, you know, you, you get to the point of, will the real Calvin please stand up? <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. And I mean, if you look at a character like John Owen in the 17th century, who you you know, might probably be referred to as, you know, the greatest Calvinist theologian in England in the 17th century. Yeah. I think it's true to say that he cites Augustine and Aquinas far more frequently and regularly than he does uh, John Calvin. So again, that goes to, to Bruce's comment that, you know, not only is the Reformed tradition, if you like, pluriform in terms of 16th and century, 17th century figures, it's also Catholic in a way that points back before the Reformation and draws on 
what we would now call patristic and medieval sources uh, for its formulations. So, yeah. you know, Calvinism yeah. is a, in some ways, it's a mischievous word. If you if you allow it to take on, on a life of its own, it's a mischievous word. If you yeah. if you roughly translate <laughs> it as reformed tradition, I think you don't go too far wrong. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, this is, I remember, you know, when I was doing this book on Calvin's Institutes, you know, I spoke to Carl about this and we were talking about the Synod of Dort. And, and one of the things he pointed out to me, which was very helpful, was that at the Synod of Dort, uh, Teodor Beza, who's Calvin's successor in Geneva, is cited many more times than, than, than John Calvin is. And one of the things you have to always be careful about is citing somebody doesn't mean the same thing that they are influential. Hmm. It means that you know, you cite somebody because they have a kind of, uh, you know, cachet that it's it's it sounds good if you cite John Calvin. That doesn't uh, yeah. mean that you're actually influenced by him. Interesting. Um, you know, John. You know, uh, uh, Jonathan Edwards cites Calvin all over the place. But Jonathan Edwards' theology, as you would not say, is the same of John Calvin's. <laughs> very different. In fact, yeah. he's in he's in argument with John Calvin a lot of the time. Huh. So it's it's very very dangerous to draw you know straight lines of influence. Hmm. Yeah, and so I mean, kind of coming into Calvin's background, so distinguishing, not distinguishing, understanding our terms between this. What what is maybe kind of in a broad sense, maybe as as concise as you can be. What what is Calvin born into theologically and culturally? And what does he kind of give to the 17th century? And do they kind of hold on to what Calvin's teaching, Calvin's context, or is it is it morphing, switching into something else? Well, that's an interesting question. I think one of the great contributions I think that Calvin makes in the Reformation is uh, biblical commentary. Uh, if you if you try to read a Martin Butzer biblical commentary, for example, it's incredibly long-winded and at, at points, I think, very garbled. Calvin produces a form of biblical commentary that it's not always, it doesn't always represent the brevity and clarity that I think he, he aspires to. But I think one of Calvin's great contributions in, in the 16th century, and indeed, I think, to the church in general, are the biblical commentaries that mm. that he produced? That he he deployed the best literary skills of the of the kind of Erasmian humanism uh, that fostered him, uh, and deployed those with with remarkable acumen and skill relative to expounding the biblical text. So that's one of the things I would say that you know, when you think about the Reformation, often we think, for example, if Erasmus is the bad guy because we read the Reformation as Protestants through the lens of Luther in fifteen twenty five. I think when you look at Calvin, you see, uh, again, much better fruits of Erasmianism coming into Protestantism mm. at that point. And his literary skill, I think, is yeah. the thing that most impresses me. Yeah. I, th I think, you know, I, I absolutely agree with that. Uh, I think if you think about Luther or any of the other reformers, Melanchthon, what Calvin was really able to do was to articulate a theological, ecclesiological vision of striking clarity. Mm. Um, he emphasized the sovereignty of God, which was a God of a, a providential God, a God of predestination, whatever you might make of that. But he, he articulated a God who was in covenant with with God's people. 
and, and for a changing society of the 16th century, a society of enormous tumult and into the 17th century of, of endless religious wars. Calvin gave, and I think again, I would say following from Zwingli and others, gave a very clear account of the church, of the sacraments, of the relationship of humanity through to God through a covenantal relationship of a God who is present in the world, present in history, uh, a God who never abandons those who are in exile or refugees because the, the reformed Calvinist tradition is very much associated with refugees mm -hmm. in the 16th and 17th century yeah. uh, as it is to, to uh, in, into the new world. Um, I think one of the, the great strengths of the Reformed tradition, and perhaps also its weakness, but its, its strengths is, is its clarity of vision, which um, isn't, simply isn't there in Lutheranism. It isn't, it isn't there in, in other articulations of it. it. Calvin is, as Carl says, an extraordinarily lucid writer um, who 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 is able to explain in ways that people are able to understand uh he has a knack for for making the complex uh very very discernible hmm. yeah and for much of what we know of calvin and his teachings and his writings and his works was initially what calvin was doing was that in a response to an opposing view or was he more just kind of re-clarifying or refreshing uh reformational theology or maybe a little bit of both because i know that he could have definitely been um counteracting some opposing views as well yeah well one of the interesting things about the institutes i mean the institutes goes through five and six editions uh, during his life, uh, up until the 1559, which is the one we always read in the English translation, which is when the work is divided into four books. Mm -hmm. That book, the Institutes of the Christian Religion, is very much a kind of spiritual autobiography of Calvin. He begins it in 1536 when he's virtually an unknown refugee in, in Basel. He writes this little work, which becomes a success, right? He revises it again and again and again in both its Latin and and French forms. He's doing it often in terms of the various fights he gets into, uh, whether it's with, you know, over the doctrine of justification or over anti-Trinitarianism or Servetus, as, as Carl's already mentioned, uh, the nature of Christ. Um, so the book grows as he's involved in these various disputes, but it also grows. Calvin never studied theology. He doesn't have a theological degree. He didn't, unlike Luther, who was a professor of Bible, uh, Calvin studied the arts and he studied law. He never mm -hmm. studied theology at university. He's an autodidact. He studied it himself. And so his institutes grows over the years as he's studying and we can follow his course of study, whether he's reading the church fathers, he's reading the, the theologians of the middle ages, he's reading all sorts of things. So the book grows as he grows. So the book is like a, is, is constantly in, in process as Calvin is a person who's constantly in the process of becoming uh, Calvin. So he's, yes, he's writing against things, but he's also 
you know, he's preaching five times a week. He's writing these biblical commentaries, as Carl talks about. He's he's writing these tracts. As he grows, the book grows, and to become this very expansive view of, of doctrine, Calvin never liked the word theology. He preferred the word doctrine hmm. because he thought theology he associated with the sort of medieval uh, academic institutions. He preferred the word doctrine, which, you know, and, and the institutes was to become, in his view, as he says in the introduction to the 1559 edition, it is his summary of doctrine. It's a summary of what we can know. Hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's the summary of revelation in scripture. And, and so, but it's, it comes out of a life of study and preaching and pastoral care and yes, and also fighting with various opponents. So it's, 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 the book is a very existential book. It's about him and his evolution as a, as a Christian. Yeah. And so kind of going more, uh, more macro too, just for, I mean, kind of with the, with the book structure itself, it's not structured, I think, how many people are, are expecting coming into the book, where it's just about Calvin's life. Let's talk about his theology. Let's talk about his context, his background. But it kind of goes from before Calvin, what is he born into? And it goes up into the present days. What, what was the thought process behind structuring the book this way, finding the editor, finding those who wrote the different chapters and bringing this structurally from the 1500s until present day? I think a major driver was the, the thought that Calvinism has been a huge, well, for one of the Calvinism, the Reformed faith yeah. has been a huge influence on so many areas of culture and so many places across the world. I mean, in some ways, it's, I often think about the Westminster Confession of Faith, which was in some ways the quintessentially English document. It's the document being forged during a time of the English Civil War uh, under the authority of the English Parliament. And yet it has almost no impact in England whatsoever. Hmm. Yet it's taken very seriously in Korea today and places hmm. like that. So part of, I think, the agenda with the book was to try to bring to people's attention how this, in some sense, quintessentially European movement or European set of ideas actually had a huge impact across the globe and also in a whole variety of different areas. Uh, Calvinism has, has clearly played uh, a large role in, in reflections on church and state over the years because mm -hmm. one of Calvin's major, uh, well, his major struggles in Geneva in some ways focused on the respective rights, authorities, spheres of, of church and state. Yeah. So there was that dimension to it. The rise of the legitimation of rebellion. Uh, cannot be understood in isolation from strands of the Reformed tradition. And then you get to things like, uh, in the 18th century, the great revivals that, that marked English, Scottish, and, and North American culture in remarkable ways. Some of the key players in those were those who would have identified in some way as being heirs of the Reformed tradition. Jonathan Edwards has been mentioned, and of course, George Whitfield uh, mm -hmm. on, on the, the English Methodist side. And then when you move into the 19th century, European politics is profoundly affected by disruptions within Calvinistic churches. You have the 1843 disruption in the 
Church of Scotland, leading to the founding of the Free Church, the Sabbatarian denomination to which I belong, <laughs> that, uh, that meant I didn't go to things on a Sunday in 1988. Uh, and you have the, the, a couple of major church splits in the Netherlands relative to Reformed uh, tradition. You have the, the Afscheiding of 1834, and then you have the Doliansi at the later part of the 19th century. So Calvinism profoundly shapes European politics even into the hmm. 19th century. Uh, so I think what was driving the, the breadth of the book was an, it was an attempt to try to demonstrate the, the intellectual, cultural, and geographical reach of the Reformed faith slash Calvinism right down to the present day. And the commission for the book, of course, came uh, in the sort of the wake of, I can't remember if it was Time magazine or somebody declaring Calvinism to be a sort of rising and significant force in American culture. Yeah. That seems like a millennium ago. Now, <laughs> yeah, it does. Yeah. But, but, you know, if, if we're going to say that, I mean, you know, we're, we're all sitting here in the States at the moment. But, you know, I think one thing the book wanted to reflect is, you know, in truth be told, the future of Calvinism or the Reformed faith is probably in the majority world now. Yeah. It's it's in Asia. It's in Africa. Uh, it's it, where it's growing exponentially, yeah, hmm. and continues to grow as a global faith. And that's something the book wanted to reflect: hmm. is that this is not just a European North American story. Uh, where if we now think about Reformed Christianity, we think about churches in Seoul, we think about churches in Africa, we think about churches in Indonesia, we think about churches, you know, that are, are not necessarily the ones that we're, we're most familiar with, but ones in which where, you know, the, the growth of, 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 you know, and we think about the borders between, you know, the Reformed tradition and Pentecostalism, one of our chapters about Ghana, in the book, you know, talks about how, you know, the, the, there there is this sort of porous border between reformed and Pentecostalism. Well, this is the new reality mm. of global mm. reformed re religion, and and our kind of perhaps more locked into uh, denominationalism doesn't make a lot of sense to people beyond our borders. Hmm. Yeah, so kind of, I mean, digging into that a little bit more on, on my end with, with the structure. What, what was a chapter in the book that both for you and you think for, for listeners or for readers are going to strike them as surprising? Saying, I, I wasn't expecting this from Calvin or Calvinism. Yeah, I think the, I think the chapter, I'm, I'm just I'm trying to find the title. Uh, where is it? Yeah, I think it's uh, Enchanted Calvinism, Healing and Deliverance in the Presbyterian Church of Ghana. Hmm. I mean, Bruce has already alluded to that. Yeah. I think for me, that was one of the more surprising chapters. <laughs> yeah. And again, showing Calvinism transposed into an African context. From a, a sort of intellectual historian's perspective, I think the, the article by Annette Aubert, Old Princeton and European Scholarship, Hmm. is significant because the, the old Princeton story as told by Americans is typically the story of Scottish common sense realism. Mm -hmm. yep. uh, whereas what Annette does in her article is, is show how American Calvinism of the, of the, print, the old Princeton variety 
cannot be separated from this interesting dialogue with with German theology, which makes perfect sense because Charles Hodge, B.B. Warfield and company, they were they studied in Germany, uh, right down to J. Gresson Machen, of course, in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. Germany was a standard port of call on the cursus honorum for uh, American conservative Calvinist theologians. So I think from the intellectual historian's point of view, I found a net article interesting because I think that opens up a new angle on understanding the German influence on American Calvinism mm. in the 19th century. Everybody knows Mercersburg is shaped by German theology. Mm -hmm. Old Princeton, not so much. So mm. the Ghana chapter and the Old Princeton chapter, those would be my two sort of okay. picks. Yeah, they made me think. They made mm. me really think. What about you, Dr. Gordon? I, I, you know, the, the, the chapter on Ghana, I was, I, I'm very attracted to because uh, I read his book on enchanted Calvinism, and that's what, you know, excited me to invite him to, to contribute the, the chapter. I think, um, I mean, there are various ones, uh, there are lots of them in there that I, I find, I find fascinating. William Dyrus's book on, 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 on chapter on, on visual Calvinism, uh, yeah. Uh, Brad Holden's chapter on Milton and Calvinism, uh, uh, Claire McEachran's chapter on 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 Calvin and 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 Shakespeare, which is not a combination that's often made. Yeah, yeah. I think what I what I appreciated about a lot of the chapters uh, uh, through right to 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 the end, you know, uh, Shannon Crago Snell's article on this is that it's not a book of reverence. It's not a book of, you know, how great thou art about John Calvin. Um, it's, <laughs> it's, it's a book that often challenges our view of mm. the, of the uh, you know, preeminence of both Calvin and Calvinism. And, and I think what I, I appreciate, you know, the, the chapters through Brazil and Korea is that there's no easy narrative here of, of, of Calvin and Calvinism. And in many times it, it's, it's shown to be, you know, not entirely what we, we might've imagined it to hmm. be. And I think that's that um, going back to Carl's earlier point, I think that was one of the rewards of choosing people who are not necessarily in the guild of writing about Calvin. Um, you know, Barbara Pitkin's article is, is fantastic on, on historical, you know Calvin and historical thought, but you know many of our our people of who who bring a, a different perspective to Calvin to realize that it, in many ways it's deeply problematic as well mm. as 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 you know a foundation of of modern thought and modern Christianity in many ways. But there's there are, our authors don't hesitate to point out where the problems are, and I mm. think that's what I I greatly appreciate. Yeah. Yeah, many of, if not all of the essays are models of, of a kind of appreciative but critical history. Yeah, which those, those a, tend to be some of the best books, as auto, yeah. I mean, biography wise, too. You get yeah. it's not hagiography, it's let's let's yeah. dig deep yeah. into this, peel back the layers. Yeah, there are yeah. many articles in this book that you know I would have no hesitation in pointing talented students to and saying, you know, if you want to know how to write history. Hmm. about something you love but you want to have a, a perspective on it yeah then many of these articles provide models i think for how how a young academic might want to to sort of start shaping their approach to to writing and thinking about historical topics yeah 
As far as uh, Calvin's teachings, what's something that is, you would say, universally accepted by reformers, the Reformed Church, and what's maybe something in Calvin's teachings that's more maybe generally debated amongst reformers? Including us as reformers in our churches today, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that question points towards one of the you know, one of the great things about Calvin, of course, is by and large his lack of originality on the theological front. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I'm almost inclined to be facetious and say, you know, the, the great original theologian in Geneva in the 16th century was Michael Servetus, and they burned him because <laughs> yeah. of his originality. <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, I mean, so much of what Calvin holds to, I would say, is is the stock in trade of of small c Catholic mere Christianity. Uh, Doctrine of the Trinity, the Incarnation, these things where Calvin offers a brilliant summation of what is general, basic, mere Christian truth. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, and Bruce may, may have a different view on this, I think one of the things that even among self-identifying Calvinist or Reformed people that may be debated is his view of the Lord's Supper. Mm-hmm. My impression of a lot of those who identify as Calvinists today is they're probably closer to a, a kind of memorialist position, yep. which is more yeah. typically, I hesitate to say it's Zwinglian because <laughs> Bruce knows a whole lot more about Zwinglian than <laughs> exactly, I do, but yeah. it's typically imputed to Zwingli. Yeah, it's easier to understand for a start. <laughs> the, the simpler guy tends to tends to win in history. Yeah. But I would say the, the place perhaps where most Calvinists don't perhaps don't realize that they're not really Calvinists is is in a rather low view of the Lord's Supper, which is not Calvin's view at all so that might be my choice of Mm. you know normally people go for predestination but i'm going to go for i think the lord's supper Mm. the lord's supper is one point where even a lot of fans of calvin might be surprised to realize they're not actually with him on that when they when they read those sections Mm. i I think the challenge i I agree very much with what what carl says just but just to say something you know slightly different um i think you know, you, you know, Nick, your question is is where where I I, I think in, in many ways you, you can go back to first principles and talk about the sovereignty of God. And 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 you know, I think the whole issue of divine determinism is is still for many reformed uh, deeply you know problematic, you know, you know, get back to questions of did God will sin and you know which is what calvin's opponents said he was saying um that god is the author of sin um what does it mean to have uh the the you know this the 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 sovereignty of god and and a god who is providential who is um all things of unfold according to divine uh, plan what does that mean for you know disasters what does that mean for horrible things that happen in human history what does that mean for the relationship of humanity and sin in what to what extent did did humans actually you know have a choice in being sinful or was it was it willed by god i think these these questions which you know in some ways sound quite abstract are still very much central to those who are trying to work out the reformed tradition you know across the spectrum from the more liberal to the more conservative 
um, you know, you know, I, I, I've read all the stuff that talks about, you know, divine determinism, but it's, it's still very much an open question. And, and still, I think a challenge for anybody who's trying to explicate reformed theology in the modern world. Hmm. Yeah. So my, my last, my last question on this would be thinking more towards those either broadly reformed or kind of into the reformed faith, asking questions about it. Those, those who, those who have a decent grasp of this, what's, what's something about Calvin that most people either don't think about or either have wrong um, that could, could, could help them towards a better view of, okay, this is, this is who Calvin was. This is his influence on us and um, how we can better think about Calvin. So something new for people or something we generally attribute to Calvin that shouldn't be attributed or should be, should be changed in some way. I think the the servitus incident is is more complicated than people typically allow. I yeah. mean, the the myth of Calvin as the sort of murderous psychopath who's determined to kill servitus is simply not an accurate account of mm. of the situation. Um, the other side of it, I think, is uh, Calvin's personal piety, uh, the prayers that uh, he, he Calvin's prayers. I think are rather beautiful. And I use them. I teach a doctrine of God class at Grove. And I try to end each class with a classic prayer from church history. And some of Calvin's prayers are very affecting and beautiful. That's not to, to wash away the sins or the problems uh, of the man, mm -hmm. but to say that he isn't just an arid theologian. There's a vital personal piety that he can give expression to in and through his prayers. So if I wanted to make Calvin attractive to people, I would press his <laughs> prayers upon them. And the same as I would do with Thomas Aquinas, actually. He's another one where I tell the students, first thing to read about Aquinas, get hold of some of his prayers and read his prayers. And that will set you up then for, for reading some of the heavier tones. <laughs> I, I would agree with that and and say and and take it in a slightly different direction and say that um, the great success of Calvin's opponents was to portray him as an intractable, mm. Uh, mm. uncompromising figure. And that's and, interesting. and whatever you think of Calvin, that's that's just not right. Calvin believed a one of his most his firmest convictions was that there could be unity of the visible church and he believed that that unity did not involve absolute agreement on every single issue whether it was forms of worship whether it was uh, questions of doctrine or even interpretations of bible he, he writes in his preface to his 1539 commentary on Romans. He, he talks about Bootser and he talks about various other people. And he says, you know, we all do this quite different ways. And that's, that's fine because we're all committed to the truth. Mm. But, in, but there was, but within that, there can still be considerable difference. And, you know, when, when the, when the English refugees who were in the, the church of Frankfurt wrote, when they were debating about liturgical issues, things that we might not regard as particularly significant, but they were caught up in a debate about them. They wrote to Calvin and said, please adjudicate what, you know, who's right here. And Calvin wrote back and said, don't make a Rome of Geneva. 
What we do here is because this is what we do. What you do there is because what you do there. Calvin had, I think, a remarkable sense of the Catholicity of the church. And that is that it is a body that is united by a, a confession of Christ and of the word and of what is essential. But within that body, there would be considerable diversity of practice and of belief and the way in which things were done. And I think people have lost sense of Calvin as, you know, not in a necessarily a modern sense, but as an ecumenical uh, figure of, of what the Catholic church would look like. He believed it would include, you know, the Lutherans, it would include, now he did draw the line at Catholics, he did draw the line at Anabaptists, but he still had an expansive view of what the church could be within its, its you know, within its differences. And I think that's something of Calvin uh, that has been entirely lost. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I think I've, yeah, I've, I haven't heard much about his, in a sense, his inclusiveness to to those who still profess the same Christ and the same confessions. Yeah, that's uh, not yeah. to make him a modern liberal. Yeah, it's, totally. It's, yeah. it's it, but it's to make a sense that he has a much more expansive view of what the Christian Church was than the kind of. The, the, the person who sat in Geneva and threw thunderbolts. <laughs> That's right, yeah. Well, cool, yeah. Thanks, thanks for coming on uh, again to talk about this handbook. And I, I know it's a, it's a labor of love and um, getting everybody together to make sure that this book is, is cohesive and, and logical in that sense. So thanks didn't for coming on. ask us how on. long it had taken to put together. No, <laughs> oh, how many deadlines? We're not going into, into that story. Um, <laughs> It started, it started so long ago that Calvin could have been a contributor. He was he was going to do the jacket blurb originally. That's right. <laughs> That's good. Cool. Yeah. So they, they could they could see the long canonization process of this Oxford handbook. It's well matured. Guys. That's right. Cool. Cool. Thank, thanks again for coming on. It's been a pleasure. And yeah, I hope people pick this up, learn a little bit more more about Calvin biography, his context, and and not just kind of the stories that we grew up quote-unquote, grow up hearing about Calvin himself. Hey, guys, we hope you enjoyed that episode of our podcast, Guilt, Grace, Gratitude. And we, as we've said before, we are bridging the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. So we would like to make sure this is enjoyed by others around the world and how to best do that is rate and review us on itunes yeah and you after you rate a review or instead of writing review or doing everything all at once retweeting us on twitter liking us on twitter liking us on instagram following us on both of those platforms because that actually puts in front of people's physical face this podcast these guests and most importantly the gospel the doctrines uh, that these guests are, are bringing in front of you guys. So please do that. It helps get in front of more people. Amen. And hopefully you guys are part of a local church and you're tithing. And uh, after that, after tithing, if you have any means left over, please consider donating to us to make sure our bridge is well paved and maintained and strong and sturdy. As again, we bridge the gap to reform Christian <laughs> theology. Exactly. Yeah. And you guys can find that link on Anchor, our official Anchor website. If you just go on um, our social media links, it'll, it'll link you to that website. It's also at the bottom of these 
this podcast show notes. If you're on this podcast, this specific episode, scroll all the way to the bottom of that show notes and you guys will find a link for this for three different options of donating. So we hope you guys can help us bridge the gap, pay for shipping, get nicer stuff, all for the focus of spreading the gospel further. Yep. All for the kingdom of God. Thanks so much, guys. We'll see you guys next time.